0: Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, Just by a show of hands, how many of you guys are into conspiracy theories? Yeah, like the the moon landing isn't real. It's fake. Or even, I think one of my favorite ones is uh, that pigeons are actually cameras that the government uses to watch our every move. Yeah, because, I mean, you look into their eyes and they're watching you, and it freaks you out. I, conspiracy theories always remind me of the, the movie National Treasure, the, the first and second one, uh, and I, my, my mom, she loves to share the story. She has no idea that I'm going to share the story, but because she's, she's in the audience over here, so, uh, but when the movie came out, we went and saw it in theaters. Uh, how many of you guys were alive back then? Most, most of you. I mean, there's some kids, kids that aren't in here, okay. Um, and and so we went and saw it in theaters, we were pretty young, and, uh, I had to go to the bathroom, so my dad takes me to the bathroom, and, uh, it's at the end of the movie, okay, I don't leave in the middle of movies, I just don't do that, all right, anybody with me? Nobody? Okay, well, all right, you guys take your bathroom breaks whenever you want, I guess, um, (laughs) But it's the end of the movie, okay? And if you guys remember, he's got this mansion, he's got this girl, right? And Riley, he gets a Ferrari and he you know, drives off and, and the girl hands him this treasure map, okay? And he's like, oh, where does this lead to? And then she starts like running and my brother gets up and he screams, it's in the backyard. <laughs> all, you know, conspiracy theories, it, they're all crazy, right? And I think my brother's theory was that it was in the backyard, when in reality it wasn't. There was theories that that last a long time, some that fall short. And and today, this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Habakkuk, and there's a lot of theories about this book itself. Um, And and a lot of them have fallen short over time. There's not a lot that we know about Habakkuk, and so uh, this morning we're going to look into this minor prophet. Um, before we begin, we're going to pray here in a moment But I've got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm really excited um, This is one of my favorite, if not my favorite book of the entire Bible uh, I studied a lot in college, uh, got to preach on it a couple of times in college I love this book But it's not an easy book As you have seen through the last several weeks in the Minor Prophets It is not an easy study to hear of wrath and injustice and destruction over Israel and Judah, over other nations, to see a God that that fulfills in his wrath, but that he's also showing his love. And so Habakkuk this morning, even though I'm very excited, I'm nervous because I want to do it justice. I'm nervous because it is not an easy book to walk through. It's only three chapters. It's not a very long book. But there's so much in it that is so important for us today. And so if you guys would join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the worship that has led up to this point. God, I pray that this time now continues in that. That we worship you through our time together, opening our Bibles and and looking at the story of Habakkuk. God, I thank you for this opportunity. I don't take it lightly. God, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would push the nerves and the excitement away, and that uh, we would hear you, that you would have something for myself even this morning. God, we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So last week, we opened up the book Nahum, right? And it's this these woes of destruction to the to the town of Nineveh, the city. Okay, now the the city Nineveh is also known as Assyria, this giant nation, and that was the capital. And, and Nineveh was not a great place. Uh, Stephen mentioned that it was kind of like Jonah Part Two. The 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 story continues. Okay. Jonah, he goes and he preaches the, the eight-word sermon of repentance and the town repents and he's mad about it, and rightfully so. And so then a hundred or so years la- later, they're back to their old ways. They have not been repenting and following God's ways. And so he has these woes of your, your time has come. You're going to fall whether you like it or not. There is no second chance for you. And so, we see this happen. We see Nahum declare that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And this city was ruthless and distraught. They had no regard for humankind and did whatever pleased them. And God declares that they will be destroyed and vanquished from the whole earth. So imagine how Judah is feeling. Okay, there's two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and Judah is probably on top of the world. Nineveh is going down. They finally are getting it. We don't have to be under their rule anymore, and they're probably excited. They're hearing this, and they're like, yeah, let's go, God. Yeah, let's do it. The good guys are finally getting it, right? They're, they're finally getting their way, and, and the bad guys are going down, just like every good movie. The bad guy goes down. They would have been ecstatic. But they didn't know that something and someone was coming, and they were worse. And so the year that Nineveh fell, I'm just giving a backstory a little bit, setting up the book of Habakkuk and why it's important. The year that Nineveh fell was 612 BC. They fell to the Babylonians, but Assyria was still kind of around. Nineveh had fallen, but the nation of Assyria was still kind of there, and it wasn't until the year 605 B.C. that Assyria was, like, officially gone. Their, their military, everything, was, it, it was wiped, okay? This was the Battle of Carchemish, and it was between Assyria with the help of Egypt, so they had to get some help, even, to try and defend themselves. But Babylon, they just wiped them out, just com- completely wiped them. And the reign of Babylon began. And so for seven years, they've been on this map. They've been becoming the new big bad, and they wipe away the one that Judah was afraid of, and, and so Babylon was worse, and this is where the story begins. But before we can get into the story, we've got to know a little bit about who this man was, Habakkuk. And so besides the book of Habakkuk, these three chapters, we know nothing We know nothing. We don't know who his parents were. We don't even know the time really it uh, was written. We don't even know what his name means. There's speculations, but we don't know for sure. There's nothing that we know of except for this book. And it's an important book. Now, we can assume based on research and what scholars have suggested over time that the book of Habakkuk was most likely written before 605 B.C., And part of that is we'll get into based off of the scripture itself. But we also know that Nineveh has fallen and Assyria is no longer a threat. And this new threat, Babylon, is on the doorstep. Now, the difference between Habakkuk and almost every other prophet, major or minor, is that instead of this prophet being an uh, intermediator between God and a person or nation, this book is a conversation between him and his God. A conversation that shows that he is struggling with how the world works, with the evil that is inside of it, and the lack of God interacting with justice in his people. We get the pleasure of seeing a man who struggles with the world around him, like many of us probably are today. He shares true emotion and frustration with God, seeking justice for his people. Not expecting the answer he gets, but chooses to be faithful Nonetheless, And so we begin. If you guys have your Bibles or your tablets or your phones and you want to open it up and follow along, we're going to be throughout the whole book. Uh, it will be on the screen as well, but there's just something about having a, a hard copy. Habakkuk 1. The complaint, response, and another complaint. So we start with verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Another translation uh, says the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet saw. But there are even another couple of translations, because there's a ton of translations out there, that says this, the burden that Habakkuk the prophet did see. So we're two words in, and we already are seeing that this is a burden for Habakkuk. We haven't even really started to get to what that burden is, but we already know that it's weighing him down that he is struggling to even, even come to terms with what is going on in this world. Now, we have all gone through burdens. We may are going through a burden right now, and I'll tell you what, we'll go through more on the other side. The, the past is full of it, the present is full of it, and the future is full of it in this world. And Habakkuk is seeing this, this burden And if we're being honest, when we see in the first two words the word burden, we don't really want to continue going on. It's not rainbow and sunshine, it's darkness, it's hurt and pain. And it's not easy to read. But if we stopped at the burden, we wouldn't get to see the goodness on the other side, we wouldn't even get to see how it ends. And so before we begin, my encouragement for you is that when you're in a burden, push through. Don't give up, because you never know what's on the other side. You never know what's at the end. And so we're in this burden, and this is how it starts, two, verses 2 through 4. "'O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save?' Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is the first complaint that Habakkuk prays, slash tells God of what he is seeing, what he is witnessing. And he has been crying to God for help because Judah, not another nation, but Judah, Has been disobedient and evil, forsaking the law and perverting justice. He acknowledges the righteous of Judah being surrounded by the wicked. Now, if the law isn't being upheld, then we can safely assume that even royalty is perverse. The king at the time was Jehoiakim. He was put on the throne by the Pharaoh of Egypt in 609 BC. Now, this is before the Battle of Carchemish that sent the Assyrians goodbye forever. But one of the textbooks that I was reading this week said that Jehoiakim was so evil and vicious that the Lord sent several foreign nations against him, not just the Babylonians, but the Arameans, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. During his reign, he destroyed Jeremiah's scroll. It's okay, he wrote another one. That's why we still have it. But, But he did destroy the first one, cut it up, and burnt it. This was the nation of Judah at the time. And Habakkuk is pleading with God to do something. Because in his eyes, he hasn't yet. And so we see this response then from the Lord. And it starts in verse 5, but we're going we're gonna to save that for a little bit later. It starts in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. I'll be kind of using them uh, interchangeably. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So the Lord responds. But instead of a response of, I'll get those that are wicked out of Judah, it's a response of, I'm sending a nation that is even worse. It's not really the answer that we want to hear. When we come to God with, with frustration. When we come to God with, with a just prayer, God, there's wickedness around us. T- can you take care of it? And he says, I will. But it's through a worse nation. And we see that all throughout Scripture. When Israel, when God's chosen nation, goes against their word, their covenant with God, he uses another nation to point them in the right direction. And so we see it again. We see it again. This group of people are even worse than the Ninevites. I mean, they are the ones that destroyed the city of Nineveh, after all, and completely took over the Assyrians. I mean, you've got to be pretty bad to do that. He even says that guilty men whose own might is their God, that they worship their strength, their cruelty, it is who they are. And so Habakkuk has this response in 12 through 17 of like, wait, what? (laughs) That's not what I was expecting. I was expecting you to be like, oh yeah, okay. Not, Not a worse nation. He had asked the Lord to rid Judah of its evil and injustice, and instead he sends a nation that's worse. A nation where injustice runs rampant, does whatever they please, defiling everything in their path. I think we can look at news stories over i mean even our history books over time and we can see nations that are like this and they're there to destroy but habakkuk has this this response in in chapter 2 verse 1 he says i will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what i will answer concerning my complaint and so he's confused. Why this nation? Why, why these people just take out the injustice that is in front of us, but he says that I will watch for your answer. Now, a watchtower was the highest point of the city, usually on the wall. And you could usually see, like, if there was an incoming nation that was trying to overtake them. And so he uses this metaphor this imagery of being on this watch post to watch for God's answer. That's when it's the first thing that he sees or the first thing that he hears. So that he can then answer again and have this conversation on going with the Lord. Patience to listen to the Lord's voice. And so then we get into chapter 2. There's chapter 1. It's a complaint, an answer, and then complaint. But he ends with, okay, I'll listen. I'll wait, and I'll listen. However long it takes, I will wait, and I will listen. I will be patient before the Lord's voice. And then we get into Habakkuk 2. This response again from the Lord, this request of faithfulness. And then there's some woes. We've gotten kind of used to the woes over the last few weeks, and so we get some more. So this answer from the Lord is a, a vision that will take place at its appointed time, right? It happens often when it comes to a prophet. It's not something that necessarily happens now. It happens at an appointed time. And so it's, it, it's common. But Habakkuk 2.4, this, this faithfulness, he says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is a word that the Lord is telling Habakkuk to write down. That his soul is puffed up. The Lord's soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him. It's not okay. But guess what? The righteous shall live by his faith. Live by his faith. And so he tells him to be faithful. And we'll get into that a little bit more. I want to kind of cover these woes to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians. A set of woes to them for their injustice. See, God, He may send a nation that is worse, that is destructive, that is cruel to point His people back to Him, but He never just leaves it that way. Our God doesn't do that. Our God uses situations and nations to point His people back to Him, and then He takes care of that situation. And so He has these woes to the Chaldeans. But it's not just for them. I, I believe that it's also for anyone that lives this kind of lifestyle, any nation, any person that lives in this. And so the section title says, Woe to the Chaldeans. But throughout the section, it says, Woe to him. Woe to a person who does this. Anyone that does the things for the Lord knows and judges accordingly. And there seemed to be a parallel that happens between Habakkuk's complaints and some of God's answers to the Lord's woes to the Chaldeans. So the Lord says, Woe to him, this is in verse 2-6, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. This is otherwise known as like plundering. Going in, taking what is not yours, and and bringing it back for yourself. And this answers the Lord's response to Habakkuk in 1-6. It says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march throughout, through the breadth of the earth to, to seize dwellings not their own. And so he's saying, they're going to do this, but woe to them. Woe to them that do, because I'm coming. I've got an answer. The Lord says in, in 2.9, says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. This is Greed. And answer, uh, it answers Habakkuk's plea in 1.4. Uh, For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Then in 2.15, or I'm sorry, 2.12, it says, The Lord, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And the answer in one seventeen is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. This is murder, bloodshed, taking a life. A nation that is doing these things, and God says they're going to do them, but he just doesn't let it sit by. He says, no, in time, I will take care of this. In time. Then in 2.15, it says this, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And this is drunkenness in the answer from 2, five. Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects of as his own all peoples. And then the last one in, in verse 2.18. It says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image, a teacher of lies, for, it is maker, for its maker trusts its own creation when he makes speechless idols? Now, we know about idolatry, setting anything above the Lord. And a, and a nation that doesn't know the Lord is going to make their own idols. And he's like, Nope, don't worry. I'll take care of it. Because in 116, Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. This is how the Chaldeans live. How they treat people. But God says, I will take care of it. It may not be right now. I told you, the Babylonians, they're coming. The Chaldeans, are on, on your doorstep. It, it won't last forever. They're here because I have sent them because you are evil, because your ways are wicked, and I need you to, to come back to me. And sometimes it takes that drastic measure of doing something like this to point people back in the right direction. A lot of times we see in our world where it takes hitting rock bottom, right, to, to turn your life around. And I, you know, my prayer and hope is that it doesn't do that for every person. But sometimes there's just that person who's so stubborn, right? That it, it literally is that rock-bottom moment, where it's that come-to-Jesus moment. You've lost everything else, your family, your friends, your belongings, maybe even your identity. You don't know who you are anymore, and, and that's what's going on with Judah. And for Judah, it's happened a lot. They've had that rock-bottom moment a lot throughout the Old Testament. And so he's using this drastic measure of another nation to point them back to him. And so we, we see God's plan was always to make right out of the wrong, to rid evil and injustice. He was never going to just let the Chaldeans, a nation that was not after God's own heart, not his chosen people, to just go scot-free. It was never in the plan. But we have to understand that he wasn't going to let his chosen people do the same. There has to be a consequence. And when it's on the individual level, sure, individual level, but when it's on a national level, then he uses another nation. He had to interact, and he did by using another nation to point them back to him. And so we end chapter 2 with these warnings to the Chaldeans and to everyone else who defies the Lord by wrongdoing and corrupt evil. And although this sounds like good news, it doesn't mean that what God said earlier in the chapter wasn't still going to happen. And so Habakkuk, he's hearing this from the Lord, and he's like, you know, this is all great, but it's still happening, isn't it? It is. The Chaldeans were coming, and they were going to overtake Judah. And so we get to chapter 3. We expect, right, this this moment of like, well, it's still happening no matter what, so I'm going to just be sitting in my own pity. I'm going to be upset. I'm going to complain some more. But no. Habakkuk has a different response. A response that I probably wouldn't have myself. He prays. And he worships. He prays and he worships. He goes into a prayer of remembering what God has done. And he praises him for it. He knows that the Lord is acting, and even in the waiting, that he will act eventually. And so he remembers and he reflects. Habakkuk remembers events that happened in the history of his people and how God delivered them and guided them again and again and again. But my favorite part of Habakkuk 3, and really most of the book itself, and why I love this book so much, again, it wasn't because of how it started, the burden, right? It was because of how it ended, in praise. And so this is what it says, Habakkuk 3:17 through 19 Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now that first part, though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit, no this, no that, this be cut off, that be cut off, it, it sounds like a lot of bad things. And it is. I mean, that was their economic resources. That was how they trade and sold and that's how they lived. And so all those things going away is like we have nothing left. We can't do what we feel like we should do and and there's nothing left for them. But yet he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Because those things don't bring salvation. The Lord does. The things that they do, the the objects in front of them do not bring salvation the lord does that he is the joy and he will take his joy in the god of my salvation and so he rejoices in the lord amidst doom at his front door he knows that this is coming and he knows it won't last forever and so he rejoices but it's still coming and I don't think I would have blamed him if he just sat there and wallowed in pity. If he cried and mourned of what was going to happen. But instead he rejoices. He rejoices in the Lord. Now, the the last part he makes my feet like the deers and he makes me tread on my high places. Have you guys ever like felt like you were floating before? you ever see like a a balloon where it's just like slowly floating? No? Never? No one ever? Wow, there's no response. Are you all sleeping? Man, geez, I know that I've got a monotone voice, but come on. Um, Well, one of my favorite things to do, uh, especially in college because, you know, you're in college, right? Um, I would go to a door, okay, and it has to be a single unless you got really long arms, okay, but it has to be a single, and you put your arms up against it like this, and you just you, you just press as hard as you can for as long as you can right up against the door frame okay and then once you 're like i mean your arms feel like they 're going to fall off okay that 's when you 're like, okay, good, okay then you you do this and then you you do this, and they like whee, like that it 's like they're just they just feel like they 're f- just floating on their own now i 'm doing that, but if you do that, and then this, if you feel like you're floating, and then you just start doing this, and you you actually start floating. Um, but that's that's the, the the first thing that came to my mind when I read. He makes me feel like the deers. He makes me tread. On my high places, it's just this floating. When you're in the presence of the Lord, when you're in the joy of His salvation and you rejoice in him, amidst the things that are coming to on literally your doorstep, the burdens that are in front of you, can we say that we have that same mentality? that it, it feels like we're floating in the presence of the Lord? That's the faith that Habakkuk has. This is what he's rejoicing in—the carefreeness that he feels, not because he's like, "Oh, okay, whatever," you know. This is going to happen no matter what. Might as well do my own thing. No, it's the carefreeness that God has a plan, and He's asking me to be faithful. And it may not happen in my timeline, but He said it's going to happen, and so I will believe, and I will have joy because I know my God and he is faithful. The Lord is present and working. He is strong and true. Even when we are confused and have questions, he is present. He may be silent, but he is present. And in this moment, he wasn't silent. He said, no, I've got something that's worse coming. And he wasn't sorry about it because he knew the future. He knew what it was going to do. Now if you don't know much about this timeline, this is where we get the story of Daniel. After this happens, the Babylonians come to the doorstep of Judah. They they take him over. It's not a complete like destruction, like there's some like hey, we're, you know, we're just going to rule you kind of a thing. But that's where Daniel, the book of Daniel comes from. It's from this first moment of the Babylonians taking over and they're taking some, some of the, the Jewish people into Babylon, and Daniel and his three friends are, one of, are four of them. And that's where we get that. And if that didn't happen, if God, if God didn't say that, that they are coming, we wouldn't have even a, another story of faithfulness where a nation was, was changing to, to look more like God, where, where the mission of God was being shared. Where I bet in that time, because of Daniel and his three friends, people came to know the Lord. Maybe not the nation, and maybe the nation turned away. But there were definitely people that heard the Old Testament gospel: the, the, the that the Lord is good. It wouldn't have happened. And so Habakkuk was faithful. He said, I will worship, I will rejoice, I will remember no matter what. And so why does this matter, right? We get to the conclusion and we're like, okay, great, we learn more about Habakkuk. Probably won't read it ever again, right? Started with a burden, ended with a praise. Got it. So why does it matter? How does this apply to us? What does this show us about God? And we get, to, we get to see something about God. God reveals himself in his nature in, in this book, in this conversation with his child. That his ways are bigger than our ways. We are not God. He is. We would not do the same thing as God. Right? If we had his power, we, we wouldn't do the same thing that he does. But if we had his knowledge probably would. His ways are bigger than our ways. He is God and we are not. In our minds, it'd be difficult to understand why certain things happen the way that they do. And trust me, I'm in that same boat. I don't understand why some things happen the way that they do to good people, to people in general. I don't know. But Habakkuk asked the hard questions. He was struggling with the idea of an evil world and a good God. And to him, it just didn't make sense that they came together. How can they both be true? And he got his answer. And it was faith. We have to have faith in God, that God's timing is perfect, because it is. That he has control because he does. And that his ways are greater because they are. There's a quote that I found. It says, faith is living with an expectation that God will act. And the faith that when God does, it will be just. Now, trust me, sometimes it is difficult to have that moment of, well, God, that, I wouldn't do it that way. Or God, why are you doing it this way? And it can be frustrating I understand it can be frustrating. But we have to know that we have to have faith that, that God will do something and that when he does, that it is just, that it is right. Habakkuk 2.4, it says, the righteous will live by faith. Are you righteous? Then live by faith. Romans 1.17 Says, For in, the, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul quoting Habakkuk. I mean, Paul. The Apostle Paul quoting Habakkuk, right? This no-named no guy that no one ever knew, and one of the greatest apostles ever quotes him. I think it's important. That's all I'm saying. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Be faithful. Be faithful. Acts 16, 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Continues on, Hebrews ten thirty six through 39. For you And then there's John three sixteen. We all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You see, God does answer. God does answer. You know who is the most faithful person of all? Jesus, who is God. God does answer. God does answer. He is faithful to us even when we are undeserving. He is faithful. He sent Jesus to this world to die on the cross for our sins. He is faithful. He rose again and defeated death once and for all. He is faithful. And he calls for you and for me to believe in him. You see, Habakkuk rejoices because he found his answer And that answer applies to us. We may not have the Chaldeans knocking on our front door. Babylon is is long gone at this point. Praise the Lord for that. But we have, each have struggles that we face. We all have hardships that we have to go through, whether that's on the individual level or as a family or as a friend group or through your work or through your kids or through your parents, We all have hardships that we face. And we feel like we have to go at it alone oftentimes, and you don't. If you look around this room, there are people in here that care about you. We are the church. If this building was gone tomorrow, we would still meet because we are the church. That is what God has called us to be, not a building but a people that are faithful to him. Faithful through the burdens. Because we started with a burden, two words in, and it didn't look like it was going to be good. And there was a lot of messiness in there. But it ended with praise. It ended with rejoice. And I don't think it was easy for Habakkuk to see what happened. We don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming he probably witnessed a lot of what happened when Babylon came. And it probably wasn't easy for him. But I can tell you what he continued to do, and which what we need to continue to do. is to remember what God has done. To rejoice in who he is, and to be faithful no matter what comes our way. And we get to follow his example. We get to be faithful. It is a choice that you get to have and that I get to have. So if you would stand, please, as we sing about how great his faithfulness is.